This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, your instrument approach might be going bye-bye. But there's good news for a flying club in Texas. We asked the Supreme Court to step in. And millions of people flocked to Albuquerque, New Mexico for the balloon fiesta. All right, David, you ready to do Hangar Talk? Let's do it, Ian. Okay, welcome to Hangar Talk. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. And David, um, I want you to talk about this because you were there. You saw it in real time. We gave away a, an airplane. We did. We gave away an airplane uh, last Friday, Ian, to a flying club in Texas, the Nate Abel Flying Club. And uh, Mark Baker got on a Skype call with two of the club officers. And they, um, they were one of 57 different clubs that basically sent in applications saying why they would be deserving of one of our reimagined Cessna 150s. Yeah, and so this all stems from uh, You Can Fly, the Flying Club Initiative, the idea that uh, we, uh, as part of a, a big program now, are helping to start flying clubs around the country. These are local folks who, who want to get clubs started, and, and we provide really hands-on, I mean, one-on-one sort of support to do that. We do, and, uh, and we also are um, showcasing our, our reimagined aircraft line. The 150 is a great airplane, very economical to maintain, mm-hmm. really easy for students to learn to fly in. Mm-hmm. And this particular flight club out in Texas over at uh, Hicks Airfield, just uh, north of Fort Worth, uh, they have really cool history. This guy named Nate Abel, Nathan Abel, yeah. um, helped a lot of young people fly. Yeah. And unfortunately, he succumbed to cancer in 2013. And he was a young guy, I guess. He was not that old. Yeah. And, um, and they, the club has regularly held different events honoring him. Mm-hmm. And it was a complete surprise to, to Nate's family members that this honor was going to be presented. Yeah. Um, what's notable about the Flying Club is that the um, president of the Flying Club is young. Yeah. A young pilot yep. and a college-age student, if I yeah. believe. And they are really actively going out in the community and starting flying programs, flying initiatives, looking for scholarships, yep. and really hitting the streets out there to get some of the young people involved in aviation. Yeah, so part of the drawing for the club, or, or the criteria, I should say, um, for getting into um, the award program was that you had to be starting a club um, over the past few months and get in all the paperwork that requires that club to begin. And no airplane. Yeah, and no you, airplane. You needed something to, to do it in. Yeah, and so this 150 is um, going to be able to really launch them off. Um, did you hear, by the way, speaking of the president, yeah. did you hear the one kind of cool tie of, of why he's the president of the club right now? Uh, was it his, well now his dad was part of the of the club right? yeah and apparently um, and I guess I didn't verify this independently but this is according to our folks who read the application that he was Nate's uh, last young oh, eagle right his last is right the last pilot that he took up yeah, yeah. which is incredible so yeah. it's really a kind of a sad story um, but also just really really cool that they can just continue that legacy and uh, bring the whole community together exactly and and you know here's the thing. Out of all the flying clubs that entered into this competition, basically, mm-hmm. none of them were losers, were they? Yeah, They're right. all winners. Yeah, and and so, in fact, yeah, that's right. Talking to Les, the guy who runs the program, it's like, um, 
now there's what 56 other clubs that are just on the cusp. That's right. And uh, and they just need that asset really to get them over. And that's 56 new clubs that we're going to see around the country. That's right. And our Flying Clubs Initiative can help them get over that hump, get that airplane, get people involved, and get them in the sky. Yeah. It's really cool. It is cool. It is cool. All right. So speaking of community and uh, people getting in the sky, you just came back from uh, Albuquerque. I think a sleeper event, I will say, for, for man pilots. <laughs> Uh, but you found out it's really, really popular. It was the coolest thing I have ever done <laughs> in, a, in an aircraft. <laughs> it, was a, it was really neat. Here's the thing. Um, all the pilots that I talked to uh, start, said they started out by crewing. And so the first thing to understand about hot air ballooning, and they had a million spectators there. It's just a, a beautiful wow. event. It's a kaleidoscope of colors. Holy cow. In the New Mexican uh, uh, desert in Albuquerque. They're a 78-acre Fiesta Park, hmm. you know, grass-covered park, okay. is a great place to watch this. And uh, let me back up and say why it, it's held there. The winds there form this vertical box, which I didn't understand until they explained it to me. Hmm. So usually there are southerly winds that when the balloons launch, they'll go south a little bit over the field. And then um, the uh, winds are read out to the pilots at 200-foot uh, increments in altitude. Hmm. Hmm. And so when the balloons rise, they will gradually pick a northerly wind that takes them back over the Fiesta Park. Really? And so they go from one end of this park to the other, and then they kind of drift down and come back south again. So wow. it's, it's sort of like a never-ending a circle overhead. Wow. So it's like a balloon round trip? It is. Wow. They, they don't always land at the park but while we were there. Yeah. It, it did happen a couple of times that we yeah. um, we saw several balloonists, including uh, Colin Graham, who I went up with. We uh, took off and landed from this park maybe 100 yards away from where we started is where we landed. Wow. 100 yards? About a hundred yards. Wow. It's amazing. And see, think about that. You don't you can't really steer except on wind currents. Yeah. So you really have to be a pilot's pilot, like a micrometeorologist. Yeah. And all the things about seat in the pants flying that you thought about really go into this. So you can tell I'm a little bit excited about it. Yeah. And what was cool to me was that um, uh, as I started to say, is that most of the pilots told me that they got started being a crew member. Hmm. So what does that mean? So usually if we're uh, able to go, once we get our, uh, we earn our certificates in a fixed-wing airplane, we can go up solo and we're on our own. Yeah, totally. So a balloon pilot pretty much depends on another crew member to drive the chase vehicle on the ground. Mm -hmm. So you really need two people. Yeah, so you might be flying solo, but you've got a whole team surrounding you. Exactly. And it's also a family sport. There were young kids, seven or eight years old, and when we were packing up the balloon envelope, which yeah. is the flight pocket, as you would uh, call it, we were packing that up. They would jump on the fabric itself to smush <laughs> the air out of it. Roll around on it. Yeah, and, yeah. they loved it. Yeah. And so it was a cool way to get youngsters involved mm. in aviation. That is so cool. uh, a real family deal, very wholesome, very interesting. Um, uh, we're looking at a couple of pictures here in the office. I know our, our podcast uh, listeners can't can't see them unless they log into aopa.org. Uh -huh. But um, we're looking at some very whimsical shaped balloons. Yeah, amazing. They went up in a mass ascension on uh, uh, Thursday and Friday. And uh, I'm looking at like so, an so octopus's are, garden here. <laughs> it looks so, like. So there are like classes, I mean, uh, cl uh, like categories. I mean, it's not just balloons and balloons and balloons. It's like different types, I guess. So they have uh, shaped balloons, which are different shapes. It could be animal okay. uh, creatures or sea creatures or huh. even objects like fire. I saw a fire truck. I saw a Darth Vader helmet. Wow. Balloon shaped is that. Think wow. about that. The, the dynamics and the engineering to design that. It's yeah, pretty that's amazing. As well as traditionally shaped balloons with baskets. Okay. And uh, and so they they all went up together on, uh, on a couple of days. Hmm. And at night, they had this really cool thing called a glodio. So think of a rodeo. <laughs> I've heard of a glow. Glowing. Yeah. A glow and a rodeo. You combine yeah. those two yeah. words. So at night, um, as the sun was setting, uh, the balloon pilots, uh, at the same time, they would fire their their hot air burners, and this giant you know, yellow flames would shoot into these, some of them, 10-story tall balloons. Huh. But they were statically tied to yeah. vehicles, and it was just a very beautiful sight. That's cool. This festival draws a million people over nine days. That's amazing. It's wild. So... Um, are the sort of normal, I'll call them normal, are the traditional balloons maybe, Yeah. the balloon shapes, are they less popular because of the shape balloons? I mean, do, does everybody sort of gravitate to, you know, Mickey Mouse and all the other, the fire truck and all the other shapes? And That's a real good, a real good question, Ian. Now, I'll say this. I think there was an equal amount of, uh, 
of uh, curiosity yeah. between the shaped balloons and the traditional balloons. Hmm. I think the shaped balloons are so whimsical, you can't help yeah. but, but be in a good mood when you're around them. Yeah. But I'll say this, and this is what really blew my mind. The uh, pilots themselves are kind of like rock stars. Hmm. All right, so you know, how does that happen? So well, the, wait, wait, wait. Every pilot is a rock star, of course. right? Yes. Well, we knew that. Yeah, right. <laughs> Our podcast <laughs> listeners know that, too. Yeah, right. But these At least guys, we think we are. When they when they lay their envelopes out on the on the uh, on the park, mm-hmm. and, uh, and like I said, some of them are you know five ten stories tall. There's a, a crowd of people around them, and so the the crowd is sort of circling the area. And then once the balloon envelope is filled with air, and the pilot starts to write it and get it um, erect, then all of a sudden the crowd just like swarms in. Hmm to the, where the basket is and they surround these guys wow. and then they cheer. Like when the balloon goes up, really? they, it's like a giant cheer. Wow. It's like a concert. So the whole, um, with big lighters. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, lots of free bird playing in the background. Yeah, man. Uh, <laughs> So that's that's really interesting because it's I, that's it's cool for a couple of reasons. I mean, one is like most air shows, you know, there's the crowd line, right? For safety. Exactly. But here they're part of the show. I mean, they go right up it. into it. Indeed. And, huh. And so, it's the most basic type of flight, but yet it still has this interest in people come out in droves. And, it really is interesting yeah. because of that. And, and several of the pilots that I spoke to were fixed-wing pilots. In okay. fact, one of the guys, he went up in, in what they call the uh, dawn patrol. They go up before other balloonists go oh, up. Like and a they test check, flight? W- basically testing the weather for the flight. Yeah. And uh, Tim Taylor. And so he was telling me a little bit about the fact that he learned to fly at the U.S. Air Force Academy but he gave all that up to fly a balloon. He got married wow. in a balloon. He said, hey, man, this is where it's at. Wow. This is real flying. You know, micrometeorology, I'm there. That's pretty neat. Now, did you go for a ride? I went for two rides. Did you? And I crewed on the ground, and it was hard work. Did you? The rides the, were awesome. Is this the first time you've been in a balloon? I have been in a balloon prior to this, but it's been a, oh, okay. quite a long time ago. So are, are you afraid of heights? I'm not afraid of heights if I'm in control. Okay. Like when I if I rigged up a camera in in Georgia on top of the Georgia Dome, yeah. I didn't really like that too much. Yeah. I was I didn't you know I was dependent on other things. And if I'm in an airplane, I have no problem with that. I'm not yeah. that afraid of heights. In a basket, where you're going uh, yeah. with this? Yeah, you're, you're surrounded with by air. You know yeah. nothing. There's yeah. and so you're in a wicker basket that essentially was designed and <laughs> that original design was what in the 1700s, 1600s. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. And um, and they still make them that way today. But these are aircraft. They are they have to get annually inspected. Yeah. Just like a Cessna, Piper, Cirrus, that kind of thing. Yep. The envelopes, the baskets, the burners, the fuel tanks, yeah. and it's a real aircraft with the end number. Yeah. So no, so when you look over the side, you don't get that sinking gut sort of feeling, and I was afraid it was going to drop my GoPro. Yeah, <laughs> but I was real careful about head, that. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. happened before. Yeah, <laughs> but um, it was really, it was really cool. And you're right, uh, it's this, uh, it's this feeling of freedom, hmm. and it's very hard to explain. It's more like the Earth rushes away from you oh. than you break free of the Earth's huh. bounds. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, it's a good that's way cool. to describe it. Yeah, quiet. And you can smell the smells and, and hear the sounds. Like uh, when we lifted off from the Balloon Fiesta Park Inn, you could smell the uh, funnel cakes that, that were uh, being made oh, at this, wow. uh, this little uh, concessionaire area yeah. and the coffee that was being brewed and the people shouting on the ground yeah. and clear, uh, cheering and clapping. Huh. Uh, and it's neat. And uh, right before wow. we landed with Colin Graham, uh, went up with uh, Colin, and he, he operates out of Montana, and he has a specially shaped balloon called Bud E. Beaver. Okay. Which looks like a beaver. Okay. Uh, a whimsical beaver that's smiling. <laughs> and so uh, we were getting ready to touch down outside of the park. We were a good three miles away because oh. the winds were, were not favoring going over the park that day. Okay. And so we're about ready to land, and he yelled down to a, a landowner that he saw out there. He said, Hey, can we land in your backyard? Yeah. And uh, they said, sure, come on in. And they had a white sheet marked there, which was to attract landings. Oh, okay. And so this woman on the ground, uh, Teresa, I believe was her name, said, yeah, come on down. And so huh. you're just that close, you know, yeah. asking someone, can, hey, can we land wow. in your backyard? And Did he, did he uh, bust out the champagne? Because that's a tr- they the do tradition, that. right? They, yeah. He had champagne with him. He did. But we didn't bust it out because we were working. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And he had to fly again later that day. He and, did yeah. have to fly yeah. later that day. But he did say that's a popular thing, and yeah. that goes back to some of the original ballooning history, as, yeah. you, as you know. Huh. Wow. It was cool stuff. That is cool. That's very cool. I would, I would go again. I would take my wife and daughter uh, for sure. 
Yeah. I think it sounds a, like it could be a family thing. It really is. Yeah. And it's a good way to get involved in aviation without breaking the bank, too. You, uh, they had some of these uh, balloons, baskets, and complete uh, setup on sale for, for like $5,000. The whole thing, yeah. Um, they really? were uh, it was they were listed on one of the tables there. Wow! But Colin told me he said, "Look, minimum cost probably is around twenty thousand bucks. Hmm. That's for something that's that's going to be good quality, yeah. maintained well. Yeah, you know, and something that's safe." And, yeah. and he emphasized safety. And they yeah. had a safety briefing every morning, hmm. attended by all five hundred and fifty pilots. Wow! Before the sun came up. So if you're a late sleeper, you're not going to like this. <laughs> so you got to you got to fly early in yeah. the day or right before sunset. Yeah. People like myself, very difficult. <laughs> I'm not an early riser. You'd, you'd lose half of your uh, half of your flight time. Yeah. But it, but it was worth it was worth it for that. And uh, people told me pilots and spectators alike said there's very other uh, events they'd get up for that early at the yeah. break of dawn. Beyond yeah. this, very cool. It was nice. Yeah, nice, nice. All right, so. Um, Moving on now to uh, instrument approach procedures, um, something a little more, you know, defined and and uh, a little more serious, I guess. Uh, every few years, the FAA now, especially with the advent of uh, GPS and how much that's proliferating, they come in and uh, basically go back and, and clean up uh, procedures that maybe aren't used very often or are redundant or that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Mm-hmm. You may have heard of this. It's uh, they have an official name for it and a program and everything else. But basically, what folks need to know is their approach could be going away. How many approaches are going to possibly be going away? So some estimates at uh, hundred and some odd hundred twenty five. Yeah, this that's year. that's around the number. It's funny because it it it's hard to to pinpoint the number because a lot of it changes. I mean, there was um, I think it was late last year maybe. They said, FAA said they were going to eliminate more than 700 procedures. That's a ton. It is a lot. Yeah. It really is. And so, I, but then they open it up for comment and people say, no, I use that approach all the time. Or right. when this nav is out, I have to use that approach or whatever the case yeah. may be. For safety and backup. Yeah, that's right. And so um, I think as a result, they only ended up eliminating a little over 300 or going to eliminate a little over 300. And so um, the next uh, the next round just came up and uh, the final rule came out. This the, I think they had... Um, They'd said they were they wanted to eliminate something like a north of uh, about two hundred, but now it looks like they're actually only going to do definitely sixty. Uh-huh. I think there's more they're going to study again, and so it's not a huge amount, but um, really these are going away fairly fast. And, and if you know if you get the approach blade book or anything else, you know that as you flip through, it's like the NDB approaches are few and far Gone. between now. Yeah, and yeah, a lot of the VOR alphas going away. Um, anything really that there's an LPV approach to that same runway. Right. Maybe and an ILS. It's like there's no reason to also have a VOR to it. But it ought, but it ought to be easier for pilots if you've kept up with the technology. Yeah. Now we have a lot of legacy aircraft out there. That's right, and that really does affect a lot of folks who might have a hard time upgrading their aircraft. That's true. So we really need to keep, keep that in mind. But yeah. the other thing to um, to consider is that AOPA has been very active mm-hmm. with this study committee, and so it's not like the FAA is is uh, acting in the dark and and throwing darts at a board uh, no. with a with a chart on it. Yeah, they really are thinking about this and AFA is providing a lot of input and a lot of uh, a lot of valuable input to, to keep things going. Yeah, and every time uh, one of these is announced, you know, we solicit member feedback, make sure people know about them, they have a chance to comment. And a lot of it has to do with cost savings uh, and just reducing complexity. I mean, you know, all of these have to be flight tested and charted and that costs a lot of money for it, an approach that might not get used that often. It does. And then you're thinking about, uh, you know, VOR approaches and NDB approaches and uh, the equipment itself, you know, to be maintained, as you mentioned, it's just getting harder and harder to do. I guess they built a lot of these um, stations with, with equipment that just, I mean, it was state of the art in the 1940s and 50s and early yeah. 60s. Yeah. But now it's been surpassed by things that are a lot easier. Yeah, that's right. But now when you learn to fly, mm-hmm. um, did your instructor let you use a GPS? <laughs> well, uh, he did, um, except that, let's see, I was doing my instrument. I mean, I did my private in uh, 98. Uh, I did my instrument, I think, in 99, maybe. Uh-huh. Um, and so GPS was out. There was just kind of the beginnings. I mean, it that was. was right when they opened it up to yeah. civilian and, and, and allowed a pretty decent minima. Um, and, and at that time, it wasn't that accurate. If, I think, that, yeah, if I'm not right. mistaken, the military made the accuracy be less than 100, like more than 100 feet yeah. from what, being accurate. What was that, like 30 two, meters or something it like that? 2,000 or something, I think they reduced that. I can't remember yeah. when they opened it up. Yeah. But 
Yeah. So no, I actually learned anything. Gosh, that's not that long ago. Um, I learned VORs, NDBs. Yeah, me too. Back course. Me too. Yeah. Um, back course is tough. Oh yeah, man. That'll throw you. Yeah. Oh, NDBs too. It's like if I never have to do another one of those. In the wind. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Love that. DME arcs. I mean, uh, I know you know people are listening in Alaska. I think the rest of us are wusses, but uh-huh. um, you know, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's like <laughs> I remember when I was learning, my instructor. Uh, Tossed my handheld GPS into the back seat. Yeah. And I was like freaking out. Going, yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but that taught you how to do the VOR yeah. and really maintain situational awareness. And, yeah. You know, the old sectional chart on your lap, that kind of thing. And that does play into that whole, you know, do you learn on glass or do you learn on, um, on steam gauge? And I, I, you know, I can see plus and minuses to both. And I, but I do think though, it makes the point that if you learn on glass, you do have to learn how to navigate VOR to VOR and to use those modes Dude. because, um, I, you know, and it's it's hard to quantify if you haven't done it, but I really do. I feel grateful for having learned that way, for yeah. having learned VOR only, sure. because I think it does make you more aware of where you at all are at all times, uh-huh. because you have to be. Yeah. Um, and I think it makes you think. I, I always call it outside in. I think of it in terms of you know bird's eye view, looking at the chart. I think okay, I'm north of the station or I'm south of the station, not like I'm right or left of course or that sort of thing. Uh-huh. And I I do think that helps. Well, the instrument uh, approaches that are that are going away. I mean, uh, this is not the last of it that we've heard. Right, I'm sure. And as more equipment comes on board, uh, I guess we could expect to see a little bit more of that as well. Yeah, I but, think so, um, probably. But until then, you know, we've got uh, better technology coming on board. We've got other things that are that are going to help pilots out as well, mm-hmm. including. I'm going to pitch to the next story. Yeah, yeah. The uh, Garden Avionics and this uh, North Sea approval. Yeah. That is kind of cool. It's really cool. It feels like a new time. I mean, it, this is just the coolest thing. So North Sea, if you haven't heard about it, non-required safety-enhancing equipment. And would that be something like an angle of attack indicator? Yeah. So folks probably remember, um, what was it, maybe two years ago, where... Mm-hmm. Uh, just a whole slew of angle of attack indicators got certified all at the same time. Yeah, I like that. Yep. Um, so Norsi is, it's the solidification of that process. Uh, so the, all the angle of attacks were kind of uh, piecemeal. And yeah, we think this is a good idea, FAA said. And, yeah. and the loss of control was a big deal at yeah, the time. Huge. Still, Still is. is yeah. Yep. Um, and so they said, wow, actually, this kind of works. The certification process right. kind of works. So they developed this Norsi policy and this Norsi program. Uh-huh. Um, and then Guardian... That simplifies this application. Yeah. It simplifies getting in the plane. Yeah. Right. That's right. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's that's it in a nutshell. It's like, you know, the whole idea of having to certify for every model or having to go through this so whole expensive. STC process. And timely. Yeah. Yeah. And so something like a like an iPad dock, which is what this Guardian is... I like it. It's really cool. And all it is is a... Well, I don't want to minimize what it is because they've made a really nice little dock. But sure they have. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's a hole in the panel with, uh, with portable power to it. It's... Uh, it's not uh, not really a big deal in terms of aircraft certification, but so. it won't fall off your lap. Yeah. you won't hit it with a yoke. Yeah, so no. it's great because so. it's it keeps the price of the product down. Yeah, allows some innovation, and um, I think we'll see some new things come out as a result, and uh, and it makes it safer. So. Uh, anything that brings safety to the cockpit, I cannot argue with that. Yeah, and as we said before on previous hangar talks, I just do not understand why folks would drag their feet in the, in the regulation department yeah. on allowing stuff like this to help people out. Yeah. Now, I certainly could see that if it's a detriment to flying. Yeah. And then you want to be cautious about that, and we don't want to depend on things like this as the only source of navigation. Mm-hmm. But if it's going to add situational awareness, and look, you can get obstacle an obstacle database on, a, on an iPad mini. Yeah. I mean, that will help out a lot right there. Yeah. These kind of things, and keeping it, really keeping it off your lap, yeah. Simplifying things, yeah. cleaning that cockpit up. Yeah. That's the way to go. I know. And I think I think the FA has kind of seen the light here because, you know, with an agency that's charged with safety and then you put these certification barriers in place of safety, it's like the, there's no logic to that. It's hard to argue with that. Yeah. So, yeah. Moving in the right direction for that. Thank yep. goodness. All that's right. right. So now do we have any news from Santa Monica this week? <laughs> <laughs> This is, yeah, our bonus item. It's like Jay Leno. Yeah, uh, the Santa Monica headline of the week. AOPA urged the FAA to stop dismantling of the Santa Monica airport. And basically, this is a follow-up to other items we've mentioned in previous hangar talks. And uh, we've uh, got a pretty strongly worded letter that we, we wrote. 
So we'll have to see what happens. But since we talked, or or this happened right before we talked last time, Ian, that uh, one of the restaurants near there closed yeah. down. Yeah, I think it was after. Yeah, the restaurant closed. Yeah, you know, um, I think we talked about how Atlantic filed the Part uh, 16 complaint, right. I believe it was. And we urged FAA to rule on that quickly, told the city to, again, stop. Stop dismantling piece, you know, yeah, this provide death fuel, by a thousand cuts Keep it thing. open. Yeah. Do what you said you're going to do. Yeah. So we'll probably be able to talk about this next hangar talk, yeah, too. let's do it. I hope so. All right. That was headline 4A. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So so the top story, and this is one of these that's, um, I don't want to get too much into the weeds because I, I think you can really get bogged down in the details, but something that could potentially be really important um, and that's a story that, that just came out that we just posted, uh, I believe it was late last week. It was, Friday. And and that is that AOPA has filed an amicus brief, a friend of the court brief. Mm-hmm. Um, wait, is this where you give the, um, is this where you give the, the little uh, caveat that it's like, I'm not an attorney. If you are seeking real legal oh, advice. Oh, we are not please, attorneys. Please and go if to you, an attorney yes, in your please, state. Yes, was, you should consult an attorney. Yeah, there, yeah. But we can advise you yeah. to read this story. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> on AOPA.org. That quotes a real attorney. It does. Yeah. Several, in fact. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> uh, and it's a very important. And it's, it, it, it is. All re- it all revolves around that um, carburetor issue. Yeah. Yeah. So as you might expect... Um, Poor guy uh, died in an aircraft. Um, the spouse filed suit afterwards um, that said the carburetor was defective. Uh, I think the initial ruling was that, no, it couldn't have been defective because FAA said it that's, was certified. That's right. They put it in a certified plane. Yep. Certified um, the carburetor. So, yeah, that has a safety standard and it met it. Yep. Um, but then I think on appeal. And the engine worked, yep. right? So that wasn't and an issue. And used for years, the same kind of design. Yep. Right. Yep. But on appeal, they said, mm, no, actually, uh, the state um, has a right here, and, and the jury does too, to make that determination. And that, uh, no, in fact, it does seem like it might have been defective. And so we've asked, the, we've asked that, um, that the case go up to the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. because really what this boils down to, obviously, like, like any Supreme Court case, it's not necessarily about the details of this case. What really matters is the overall issue, which and, is... And the future. Yeah. Right. Which is does the FAA is the FAA the final authority on the certification of safety? Right. Um, we think they should be. That should because you can't have fifty rules, fifty different safety rules. Got to go to one person or yeah. one organization and, yeah. and and lead the charge. Yeah, and uh, and I think it also speaks to a lot of it. You know, you hear this all the time about local uh, municipalities that want to restrict airspace or local agencies that want to restrict airspace or whatever the case may be, and it all kind of speaks to the same thing, which right. is that they can't. Yeah. It's the FAA. <laughs> right. Yeah, they're the ones who are... Who are um, Looking over for our safety, yeah. airspace, and with aircraft. Yeah, their point here. So um, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, again, it's uh, we don't want to get too much in the weeds on it, but it is, I think, an important issue and, and something that we will be following. Um, and so we'll see if, uh, if the court takes up that case. And that's called a friend of the court brief or yes. an amicus ruling. Yeah. Is it amicus or amicus? I don't know how to pronounce it. You know, I, I, pronounce, I, said, I pronounce Prescott. Prescott instead of Prescott. <laughs> oh so. my God! I give you a hard time about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was I, good. I, no, I'm asking because I probably say it wrong. I, I don't no know. Idea. We should. We should I'll uh, call it a friend of the court brief. That's there. That's that's why we call it that, right? So you that's don't. That's why I call. That's why Dave T calls it that. <laughs> so, but it's a, but it is a serious subject yeah. matter, and it does have implications that could uh, could uh, help us uh, or haunt us in the future. So you yeah, keep an eye on that. That's right. All right, Dave. So um, our guest this week. Uh, you talked to Brittany. Um, oh, yeah, Brittany Michalka. Yeah, and so you sat down with her and uh, give us the elevator speech. Well, first of all, you got a chance to work with her when she was here at AOPA. I did yeah. not. Yep. Uh, she did um, a great series of, uh, of flying episodes, winging it before Air Venture. Mm-hmm. And uh, she put herself through several different challenges. Yeah. And, uh, and I don't want to give too much away, but if folks haven't seen her YouTube videos, they should check it out. She's got a, a huge following on that. Yeah. And her real job is at Redbird Flight Simulators. Yep. And they're having a, their annual event, which is called Migration. And I believe you've been to that before. Yep. I'm going this year too. So Brittany is, uh, is the person that pulls all that together. And uh, when we spoke to her at Air Venture, she was great, very, uh, very easy to speak with. She told us she had a lot of fun doing some of those adventures, and they challenged her, hmm. challenged her a lot. Her favorite one, I think it's probably no secret, she was upside down with Michael Goulian, oh, air cool. show performer and Red Bull performer, cool. uh, racer. And um, but she did not get out of all these adventures unscathed. Uh. 
right. So I love it. All right. Good so, teaser. Uh, she'll tell us a little bit about that. So, uh, hi, Brittany. Welcome to Hangar Talk. I'm David Tulis with AOPA, and uh, you're a little bit familiar uh, with AOPA. Brittany Michalka now at Redbird. Tell us a little bit about what you do at Redbird. Uh, at Redbird, I get to do actually a lot of fun things. I work with our Migration Flight Training Conference, get to work with flight schools. Uh, and most recently, I've been doing our Winging It online series. And I've paid attention to that Winging It online series. And uh, for, for those of you who are listening that haven't seen it yet, you need to check it out. What's the uh, web address that they can go to for that, Redney? www.wingingit.show. www.wingingit.show. Yes. Okay, cool deal. So <laughs> now you did, uh, um, you had 10 episodes all together. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I uh, started checking you out on episode one when you were navigating the complicated Washington, D.C., Airspace. Yes. Do you you think back a ways a couple months ago? Do you remember anything about that? I do. It was um, sat down with Bob Hepp at Aviation Adventures and looking at that sectional with all of the crazy airspace, having him tell me about squat codes, what we're going to say, entry gates, waypoints, all of that, and um, just learning all of that from him. But actually, you know, it wasn't so bad. I think everyone should go learn about it and do it. It wasn't that bad once you did uh, the online course. Of course, AOPA has a link to that online course, yep. and that's something that uh, most pilots should do. And you know, a lot of people are intimidated by airspace. Some of, the, right. some of us who learned in complicated airspace environments, like I learned in Atlanta, and there's Class B nearby and everything else, it didn't really, you know, it, it intimidate me that much now how about you where did you learn to fly i learned to fly in central illinois at the university of illinois so we did have a tower that's class charlie airspace but it's nice mellow class charlie airspace not not busy like atlanta and not busy like the dc airspace so the dc airspace there are a lot of things to look out for and in fact uh, we're recording this week at oshkosh at uh, during 2016 air venture President Obama is headed over to Camp David this weekend. So the folks flying in that area would have another level of complications if they're flying around this weekend. And, right. You know, the freeze and everything. So um, uh, here's, a, here's a little uh, test question for you. Are you ready? I hope so. All right, I'm going <laughs> to throw it right at you. So in the uh, D.C. airspace, when you and your mission was to do a, 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 it was a photo mission. Right. That was a background. Right. And had to had, go take a photo over a golf course that was located just outside Manassas, but it was in the SFRA. Okay, so uh, trivia question, what airspace in the entire country is it frowned upon to squawk 1200? The SFRA, <laughs> you cannot squawk 1200. I know that 100%. <laughs> so that was something that you learned early on. That was pretty cool. Um, now, the second le- the second episode, uh, I-, I said, I read a little tease for it for our online e-pilot flight training issue. And uh, I said you would learn to fly all over again at Ohio University because you were trying out for their flight team. Yes, the Ohio State University flight team. So how did that go? Tell me, uh, were you a little bit nervous going into that or or was it just old hat? It was so fun. It was so neat to be back in that college environment and everyone's hanging out at the airport waiting for their flight lesson, waiting for their flight slot. Um, But it was a little bit crazy for me because I was trying out for nine different flight team events. So first I had to learn from all the coaches. And then after that, I went and tried out for every event. So it was a little intimidating and a little overwhelming, but so fun. Was there any doubt in your mind you were going to make that team for real? You know, I, I yeah, um, my message drop. I'm not sure I'd actually get to compete. They'll probably let, they let me be on the team for that, but uh, I dropped out of the window and I was so far off from the target. Well, tell us, uh, to explain to us about what that message drop is, because that's a kind of a unique thing. And I know all the other uh, flight schools are graded on that. What is what is that? Yeah, maneuver? message drop is one of the many events at the um, college, the NIFA SafeCon competition, and you fly a traffic pattern, but it's only at about 200 feet uh-huh. and you have two opportunities to drop a kind of balsa wood object over targets uh-huh. and you open the door of your airplane of we had a Cessna 150 and you just kind of guess <laughs> and so is it the targets probably not that big on the ground it's just what a few yards wide or yeah something I think like that? it's just a big tarp and then there is a barrel but I'm not 
I, I bet sometimes someone has made it in that barrel, but you know, I didn't make the tarp at all. <laughs> well, you and uh, and again with all these uh, lessons, uh, which I thought you did quite well with uh, with that at Ohio. You, but um, you did a little bit of Redbird training in the mm-hmm. flight sims to prepare you for that. Exactly. Ahead of time. So tell me a little bit about what you think that might be like for other other pilots that are just trying to either get back into aviation or uh, folks who are just maintaining their currency. Yeah, it's one of those fun things, especially like with the complicated DC airspace. We went and did it in the sim first. So when we got in the airplane, it was so much easier. When we were in Long Beach, I actually got to learn how to fly a Citation Mustang, which I have never done before. Mm-hmm. Um, but at Angel City Fires, they have a Citation Mustang Redbird Sim, and we went through all the checklists. When the airplane was going a little bit faster than I'm used to flying, we were able to pause it and practice and you know talk a little bit about what I was doing at that point. So going into the simulator before I did all the other stuff made the whole experience really fun. So it kind of reinforced a little bit of the background. It gave everyone a chance to, gave you a chance to to prep for the flight. Mm-hmm. Everything was kind of fresh. Mm-hmm. And then the, the instructors, they maximized their time as well as your time. So really, if you're a, a private pilot and you're using these type of devices, it's really saving money, right, in one way? Exactly. And it's just a, it's a fun way to just go out and learn new things, too, um, while saving the money and being able to... Uh, when I was in Camarillo, we did emergency procedures, uh-huh. and uh, I kind of I got to experience what it would be like to feel uh, in a tight spot where I was short on fuel, needing to get to an airport. And the cool thing was, I actually got to fly all the fly the scenario all the way through. Whereas in an airplane, you know, eventually the instructor would have said, "Okay, well, you know, let's uh-huh. let's continue on to the next part of the lesson." And so that was just a neat part of it too, was actually getting to do some things that you don't even get to do in an airplane. Sure. Well, we're going to talk about that one a little bit more in depth. <laughs> a minute because I, I got a couple of questions about that one of the unique things that you did was you headed up to case western reserve university yes and they have a helicopter a medical helicopter training which uh, is a uh, it blew my mind that they actually had a a half of a medical helicopter with a training device in it right and you guys were rocking and rolling in that and you were learning how to fly in a chopper as well as work on a, uh, a patient. Yes, I got to be a part of the flight nurse crew in the back of the helicopter uh, sim. So we're in a tight, confined uh-huh. environment. We're trying to, this was a simulator kind of uh, dummy guy, sure. but um, you know, I had to plug in all of the heart monitoring and everything while the simulator is moving. Um, the noise of the you know engine is is going. You're trying to assess the patient, and um, that crazy environment of a medevac helicopter is it's loud, is amazing. It's, it's loud. It's Not vibrating. Ideal, yeah. yeah, and in the fact, it's so loud at one point. Uh, you were trying to. They asked you to to do some kind of a glide scope. <laughs> procedure and then you thought you heard glide oh glide slope slope, (laughs) a pilot would make that yes exactly i was um confused (laughs) but uh but now that was uh, now the glide scope that was a medical procedure which Mm -hmm. is is out of your comfort zone it was a medical procedure that you were just learning on the fly right our our hypothetical patient was like redlining or whatever flatlining he was he was he had undergone a heart attack and some other crazy things that were going on and um so whatever (laughs) happened with that well, I hate to say it, so I, but I guess it's good that it was everything is that's the beauty of simulation. Um, I think he died. <laughs> oh, Brett. I, d- I didn't plug in the um, heart panels to shock him fast enough. Well, now, I, that, and, and, and also, yeah, plug in the. I think you guys were doing the uh, trying to get the patient uh, there, get, get their heart started, right? But the, the plugs weren't plugged into the machine or something like that in the background. Yeah, and that was my job to plug it in. I got you. So again, that's like a, there are some checklists that you probably had to go through to learn how to be a, a medevac Absolutely. You know, personnel. Yeah, that was a unique visit. I understand sometimes when people are around and I'm talking about flying nonstop and how awesome it is, and it might be a little over their head. That's um, how I felt when I was at Case Western in the medical world. It was so neat. I got you. So uh, that's, a, that's a real real good learning environment, something new, and uh, would you ever consider doing EMT work anything like that yeah it was the way they have to think on their feet they're moving fast but it really was showing the importance of a team and it would be really neat to learn more Uh more than just two days and really get to be a part of that and and work as a team now have you done any any helicopter flying yourself or helicopter sim training 
Uh, I have gotten in. We, Redbird has a helicopter sim, which is pretty fun to practice hovering. Uh, and I have been in a helicopter one lesson. Yeah, yeah. How'd you like that? <laughs> I loved it. Well, compare that to, uh, you know, fixed wing. Well, gosh, I feel like it huh. was a whole different world. So many things moving, both hands moving. You, my brain was going crazy trying to figure out and think everything all at the same time. So so what happens if yeah. you're, both hands are on the controls? What happens if you have to sneeze or something? That you're, is such a good question because I um, I sneeze a lot. Oh, no. <laughs> so I might figure that out if I take a, ne- a lesson ever again, okay. <laughs> which I'd love to. Peg that for the future. Well, <laughs> let's go to episode four. This is when you were helping some, uh, I think, some high school kids or science, technology, engineering, and math students, STEM, which is a very popular buzzword these days. Yes. For the the next generation and you were helping them plan like a real-time flight around the world yes i was in aspen working with their public school out there and we it was an around the world challenge there was a red team and a black team uh-huh. i was on the red team on the red team that makes sense and um these students had spent a couple months actually planning their flight flying uh, practicing for flight planning and learning about instrument procedures setting things up and it yeah. started on friday at 3 p.m all the crews were pre-assigned different time slots things like that and for about 48 hours in real time straight um, straight through yep we flew uh, a jet around the world i believe it was a phenom and um you know students were camped out in tents waiting for their 2 a.m shifts no kidding uh all of that it was so amazing to see watching them fly watching Uh them program and use the gps and things like that better than i knew how and the other thing is they were not allowed to use autopilot they had to hand fly hand flying it around the world mm-hmm. and uh, and the other thing is that it seemed like they were very very engaged and they had a great teacher absolutely also. so that they were they were on their mark but now 48 hours towards the end. I mean, we're talking a little bit about a little pilot fatigue, maybe that kind of thing. Yep. That it was a perfect learning opportunity uh, for pilot fatigue for sure. But they did it in Mm -hmm. fact, right? And then I'd say they powered through, they made that happen. And uh, that seemed like a a real fun event. It was really cool to see the younger generation get so involved. Oh, it was awesome. And a lot of them were so, uh, so precise on their flying that when it wasn't their shift, they were out in the hallway flying another J simulator, just practicing. It was so neat to see all of this aviation talk in the level of professionalism and accuracy that they were flying for this flight around the world. Do you think any of them will go on to be pilots? Oh, I know so. There's actually quite a few. Um, as part of that program in Aspen, they can lay out a timeline of their flight training, and a lot of them are already starting on that timeline. That is outstanding. And so you really are affecting the next generation and encouraging them and these things that you do that are very visible is it's another way to get the word out to get the good word out about flying yes we would love to see schools consider a similar type of challenge or just using that as an example of you know maybe something they can do uh, anywhere i wish they had that kind of thing when i was you know that age i'm a little bit older than they are but uh i was actually <laughs> pretty old when I, when i learned to fly but that kind of uh experience and that the technology would just be so cool to to work with that yeah it was so neat to see well Speaking of neat things to see, I'm going to bring up probably your favorite. I'm going to guess it's your your favorite episode <laughs> when you went flying with uh, Michael Goulian. Yes. Now you it did was that. My favorite. Now you did that. I, I figured it was going to be, <laughs> but now you did that really to get the hang of spin training and mm-hmm. you know push the edge of that envelope uh, in case there was an emergency situation that you needed to recognize and pull out of. Right. Okay. Yeah. The, a lot of that was a focus on upset recovery, uh-huh. unusual attitudes. It was actually really neat. Michael Gullian is such a great instructor that even just starting at the basics of stalls and talking those out with him was amazing and i felt like just a whole new way of thinking about that now you guys did some simulation training before you got in Mm -hmm. his plane and you guys was it was it a decathlon that y'all were in i can't remember we did yep okay Mm -hmm. so you did some simulation training uh uh, before that with michael gullian and also he he is an aopa ambassador so we Mm -hmm. tip of the hat to that and he's also in the red bull uh air a circuit yeah tip of the hat to that and um (laughs) now you met him where um it's up in mass 
Yes, we okay. we at his flight school at Hanscom Field for a day, and then went over to visit where he has all his race planes and um, show plane in Plymouth. Uh-huh. So it was fun. So let me uh, let's take a step away from the flying and the simulator, and now you're meeting someone like Michael. Have you <laughs> met him before? Just briefly. This was the first time I really got to um, be in his uh, facility and all of that. It was so neat. what was it like? What's he like? Tell 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 everyone who's listening what Michael Gullion's really like. Well, I was so giddy to meet someone. Of such a high caliber, such an amazing pilot. And you know what? He is the nicest person, an amazing flight instructor. And and then his group or his team around him, his family, um, a lot of that is a family-run business. And it was just fun to be around, really neat people to hang out with. He seemed so easygoing. And he was. you guys were both laughing when you were upside down in that yep. airplane. Yeah. Oh, I got such a kick out of watching that. I'm hoping everyone watching that also enjoyed it as yeah. well. Cool. Yep. That was, that was one of the, I think, one of the best days ever. And it was a pretty day, too. Yeah. Awesome. It was awesome. Well, cool. Well, now, the next thing that, uh, that you did, we're kind of going in order here, in chronological <laughs> order with the episodes. I'm getting you to relive your, your you know, past four yeah, or five months. Yeah, this is fun. Okay. I titled it uh, Flatlander Rides the Mountain Waves. That was my little tease for our e-flight. Yeah. So that was the sixth installment, I think. But you were um, learning that uh, mountain flying wasn't something you could just do on a whim. Right. Okay. Right. So a little bit of planning went into that. You know, again, simulator training in the Redbird before that? Yeah, that was fun because I mean I learned to fly in Illinois so I know you know on the ground we talk about hot days you want to lean the mixture just really thinking about engine performance but you see it in real you know in the real world flying out there in the mountains and so getting in the sim was really helpful because I was able to practice that and really think about how I was making the engine do the best uh, performance it could and that was just so helpful going out there I felt like everything I had learned in ground school ever was finally shown to me in the most absolute real world scenario it was so neat that is good now I'm going to tell you a little bit about uh, my, my recent mountain flying experience as a as I believe the Canadian snowbirds do a practice routine over us at yeah, Oshkosh. Um, and they are cool people, too, if you've never met them. No, I, oh, they, that's so cool. They, uh, they, a brief sidebar, they came to the Washington, D.C. area right before, um, right before Memorial Day, and they did a flyover over Washington, D.C. They got special clearance Ooh. for the Canadian snowbirds, and I ended up going out to Dulles Airport right next to the Udvar Hazy Museum, and we uh, got to meet them, and they're just the nicest group of people. Oh, neat. Very professional, but easy going, too. In fact, up here at Oshkosh, I believe they camped out overnight last night buy one of their airplanes. Oh, that's so cool. It's very cool. So my, so I'm gonna, uh, my mountain uh, uh, experience happened uh, early this morning. I was at the Pilot Proficiency Center. Then I flew the, what's called the Johnson Creek um, route, and that was in a Redbird sim. And we were trying to learn a little bit about density altitude and mountain procedures. And I gotta be honestly, I failed miserably. Oh. Unbelievably hard. But one reason why I wanted to do that um, is that I wanted to challenge myself. Exactly. Yeah, being a flatlander, more or less like you. And uh, yeah, I was thinking, well, Dave T, would you ever, you know, have this mountain experience? And, and probably would be rare, but wouldn't it be cool to try it and practice it ahead of time and be ready? Right. So I, I thought that the assimilator was a great environment for that. Uh, for me, it was exactly. a, a great yeah. learning experience. So uh, one thing that I did wrong was uh, on, on trying to take off in a high density and high altitude environment was that I put in for a short field takeoff, I put in 20 degrees of flaps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a no-no. Right. But, yeah. yeah. So it made the plane way too draggy. And uh, by the time the end of that runway was coming up, I was like trying to yeah, pull, back, on, pull, back, pull back, pull back, pull <laughs> back. Nothing I could do could coax that airplane in the air. And I, I tell you what, the results were, were, were not very well. Not, <laughs> not very good. Yeah, that's the beauty of it. You can really just wait and see and just see how long it's really taking. That's fun. Oh, man. I'd say so we went from that into uh, simulator training for emergencies. It looks like you were um, this one. The next one we're going to talk about challenged you a little bit more. I think this is yes. one where you were. Uh, in uh, in California, and that was when you were. Um, I guess the setup was it was a long cross country. You're mm-hmm. coming out of that. You're in a complicated airspace, uh, getting ready to land. There's a little bit of a, a little bit of chatter on ATC going on at the same time. Right. And, and uh, you're in what kind of aircraft was that? A 182. Uh, yes, it was set up as a 182. That and, sounds right. And that also had the nice <laughs> uh, had a, had a nice Garmin panel though, it right? It did. Digital. It did. 
That's good. All right, so uh, uh, headwinds on that. Uh, a little bit of, for a little bit of unplanned weather, mm-hmm. and I guess I'm gonna guess you're you're yourself a little bit tired. I mean, you've actually been doing this series, uh, the Winging It series, for for a couple of months at this point. That's so, true, and we were doing um, actually two episodes out in California, so we we had a long week that week. So, uh, so naturally, you, <laughs> so you had a long week that week, and also you're into this challenging environment. And now that was, I think Michael Phillips was uh, the instructor, was helping you out with that yes. from aviation instruction over in California now. Now, he was in the background kind of pacing back and forth while you were on the simulator. Yeah, he was. This this was a really neat one because I was in the simulator for the whole time doing that scenario. And I just assumed he was going to sit in the sim with me yeah. and, and be my instructor. But he gave me the scenario, briefed me just as you said, uh, the, the situation. And then he started the sim and walked away. <laughs> what was and that then, like? I mean, it was. I felt like I was in the airplane, kind of had put myself in a not good situation that that he had set up for me, and no one was there. I'm looking at that empty seat, and it was... It was just actually made it. I suspended all belief that I, it, it was a sim. That scenario was so neat, um, except for the times I could feel him lurking. And then, you know, the pressure that I knew I was trying to he, think through the rest of the procedures. The, the viewer uh, could see that he was pacing back and forth in the background and he was shuffling his feet yeah. going, oh, man. Yeah, he was watching some things fall apart yeah, there. She, she's not going to make it. She forgot about the headwind. Yeah. He's like, Brittany, check your fuel, Britt. What's going on with that? Yeah, that was the only time I think he actually said anything to me other than that i i was working pilot edge so there was real atc interaction yeah and um that was so neat because i really had to declare an emergency and he addressed it just like it was you know that was real and so my only person i could really talk to was that that controller well now <laughs> did you have any hesitation at all about declaring an emergency because that's a key takeaway for a lot of pilots. You know, I, I think I did. You wonder what that um, would ever feel like. And yeah. for a second, like, okay, well, I think I'm going to be okay. But even that question of thinking, but knowing the situation is getting worse uh-huh. around you, uh-huh. you know, it was like, no, let's, I need to ask for help. And I am on a radio where I know they can hear me. Just, so. just shout and tell Yeah, them. that was a good lesson I learned. Like, I will never doubt. If I need help, I'm going to ask yeah, for it. Yeah, why not? I mean, it's free, right? Yeah. All you yeah. got to do is explain why you needed that. And a lot, of, a lot of pilots really are very hesitant about that. And we've seen, you know, time and time again that that really just gets you in trouble. If you're in over your head, just uh, declare an emergency and, and and do whatever needs to be done to get you out of that, right? Yeah, and usually the, the repercussions or anything coming from that are, are nothing or so minor. They are. Um, so, yes, I now know, and it was funny to see myself hesitate and... Um, I, I would never now. I know what that would be like. Just ask yeah. for help. So you've never had an emergency uh, that, you know, real a real life emergency? While no, I haven't. Not where I've n- ever needed, not to that scale or where I would actually have had to um, ask for it. That's so. good. Now, how long have you been flying? Um, I've actually been flying for a while. I learned to fly in Illinois mm-hmm. um, when I was in college. So it's been about uh, 10, 11 years. Mm-hmm. Um I, I did actually let myself get a little rusty when uh-huh. I transitioned uh, out to Austin, Texas. So this was really a great opportunity to to get back into everything again. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you a little bit about that. Now, uh, are your private pilot instrument rated or instrument student? Um, I uh, or actually, instructor. I am actually an instructor, uh-huh. a rusty instructor. Okay, that's but, what my certificate says. I don't I don't know if I feel like so, that. <laughs> so did you get to that level while you were in school, or is that something you did after? After college, I had the opportunity to do that all in school. Okay, so you were on the fast track to be maybe corporate pilot or something like that. Yeah, I think when I started college that I was going to be a, a airline pilot, pilot flying overseas in the big jets, big jumbo jets. Which you could still do, of course. Yeah, absolutely. But I love this world. General aviation in this community is amazing, and so. I love being a part of this, and I'm so happy that I get to do it. Well, speaking of being happy in general aviation and jets, the, uh, the, one of the last episodes I saw before you came to up here to Oshkosh, the AirVenture, was when you were aiming for a jet pilot second-in-command rating. Yes. And that was out in California. You were in a Cessna Citation Mustang jet? Yes. 
And that's actually a pretty new technology jet, too. It is. It was beautiful. Beautiful airplane. All right. Now, that was a little challenging for you. And you guys did some scenarios uh, in the simulator before you attacked it in real life. Yes. And thank goodness (laughs) we did that first. And things were unfolding kind of quick, weren't they? Yeah. Well, that's a fast airplane. And I'm used to flying a nice uh, single engine piston. And so I just needed to get a little practice at thinking faster. (laughs) Uh Aha. And that was what I was going to ask you. What's a key? principle a key takeaway from that jet training yeah needing to stay ahead of the airplane and so yeah adjusting to that faster airplane and therefore thinking faster staying ahead of it and that even would um would trickle down to folks who are private pilots like myself where i started to fly i learned on it in a cessna 172 bought a little air coupe i don't even know if you know what they are yeah that's awesome yeah and that would go like 100 miles an hour <laughs> and then i went from that to a mooney which is quite a bit faster, faster with retractable gear and there are a lot of pilots in my you know same situation so really learning to stay ahead of that aircraft is a key thing no matter Absolutely. how fast you're going mm-hmm. you got to stay ahead of it all right so um so we got you back on uh in uh, the jet sim you went from that to something completely different mm-hmm. technology wise you went back 60 70 years i did and, and, and you got to Tell us a little bit about the, that last episode. Yeah, I went to um, my home airport in San Marcos. We have a CAF wing, and they have uh, the Yellow Rose. It's a 1943 B-25 bomber. Uh-huh. So I got to fly right seat in that amazing airplane. And what was that like, and how much studying did you have to do? Did you have to learn about all the systems, and what else, what was involved with that? Yeah, it's funny. The manual is a, co- a direct copy of that manual from back in the 40s, and we're looking at, you know, just basic systems and learning about uh, the hydraulics everything is is um just so interesting there but it's it's an old airplane so i did i learned all the systems and all of that yes and a lot of vibration in there yes yep nice loud noisy uh good radio engines yeah Uh, and what about the technology like the radios current or old or a mix of both um Gosh, now I actually can't remember. We have, I think we've upgraded a little bit, but for the most part, that airplane's a good, good flying air. I felt like I need to lift more weights uh-huh. um, to fly yeah. that airplane. My arms yeah. are a little weak. <laughs> so the controls are pretty stiff, it sounds like. Yeah, it's a little like, stiff and heavy, all those, um, you know, cables. Now, can you imagine, like, back in the day when these 18, 20-year-old guys were trying to fly those type of aircraft in the war? I mean, what, what could that have been like? I mean, it's so neat to think about and, and, and also a little just awe-inspiring to think about that that technology, you know, where they were flying those airplanes uh, in the Pacific and just, just everywhere. And um, it was a hot day when we were flying uh-huh. and I was dying. It's so cramped yeah. in there. I mean, it's, you it's know, hard it to just move amazing. around there. Yeah, it's amazing to think about how, you know, that history. Yeah, and I'll tell you what, um, for folks who haven't been up to um, AirVenture where they do uh, a reenactment of some World War II armaments and mm-hmm. And uh, things like that. It was just yesterday, the noise was deafening. Just right. like, you know, when they were doing these explosions on the ground. And I could only imagine what that would be like if you're taking off out of a field that's being bombarded mm-hmm. with artillery fire or something. And they're dodging these, you know, bullets and, and mortars and everything. Yeah. Just crazy. So, so crazy. So neat to, to even see that here at Oshkosh. I love it. It is. And, uh, and it's a tip of the hat to folks who've helped us in the service and, you know, uh, through the years to help help us maintain our, our freedom to fly and things like that. And this, Absolutely. You know, right we had a nice conversation so far. Tell us a little bit about what's in your future. Um, if you're able to tell us a little bit more about that, some of the folks might be interested in, to know, is winging it going to go on and do some more winging? Or are we going <laughs> to take a quick break and then try to come back? Or, or what's in the future? Well, this the whole project was meant to show some unique areas of training and, and some really fun things uh, in it was titled as my road to Oshkosh. Uh-huh. And so now I'm here at Oshkosh. We're actually going to do an episode in the pilot proficiency center. Yeah. Uh, but after that, that's kind of the, the end, at least for now, we'll start to share some additional fun footage and some content about how I learned and what I learned. But for now, I don't have any next adventure planned, but it seems like everyone's really enjoyed it. I've had a blast, and so who knows? We might do a few more in the future just because it's been such a neat neat project. I'd be I'd, I'd very much uh, be interested to see you guys keep that going and because uh, I think I really would encourage the, the next generation of pilots and some of us 
older pilots and some rusty pilots too. get them back on board. I encourage them to do a little sim training. It's actually a, a lot less expensive than getting in an airplane. Mm-hmm. gives you a lot more understanding of what's going on. You can stop and start at any time, that kind of thing. Yep. Pause so, buttons are really nice sometimes. It is, it <laughs> is. So so you did a little bit in the Pilot Proficiency Center. I told you about my scenario this morning. Mm-hmm. Um, were you helping people? Um, they've got like 14 Redbirds in there, I think. Yep. And uh, it was super crowded this morning. Uh, tell, tell us a little bit about the Proficiency Center and what you've seen in there so far. It's been so neat. Pilots of all levels, rusty pilots, VFR pilots, IFR pilots, just coming in there and picking a scenario that they have chosen to either maybe knock some rust off or try some things that maybe they couldn't do in the airplane, like, like you got to do for mountain flying. Woo. So uh, just a neat energy in there and the the great quality of flight instructors that are sitting with you through those scenarios has been so impressive. Uh, I love watching um, Taylor Albrecht on the crosswind simulator and yeah. watching people just smile because it's a little bit like a carnival ride. And it, That's um, a tricky thing. And you know, a lot of people are very intimidated by crosswinds and so they don't go out and practice it. Right. That's the opposite of what you probably should do. Exactly. So that's why it's fun to see people thinking about crosswinds and, and how to enhance their skills in that yeah. area on that simulator. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, like I told you a little bit about my mountain flying uh, scenario, which I actually did really well until uh, my instructor, Jason, pulled the power and told me he had an emergency. <laughs> and then he said, there's the field, find it, land it. Oh, and I did really good, but I came in a, l- a little bit too fast. And uh, and then he said, hey, Dave T., don't forget, keep flying the plane, fly mm-hmm. the plane, which we did. I flew it all the way in through a couple of trees and around a corner, you know, <laughs> but we, we made it down. Um, but that was a really good learning experience for me. And I met a couple of other people at the uh, proficiency center that were brushing up on their instrument work mm-hmm. so they could then have a little bit less a little bit less expenditure out of their pocket and still maintain their currency. And I hadn't even thought of that. That that was a great way to to get great experience and save a little money and then prepare yourself for the future. And a couple of guys I talked to said, hey, we come to Oshkosh just to do this. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, those sims there, uh, we have some advanced aviation training devices out there, and uh, the flight instructor can even sign, sign your logbook. Yeah, so that, cool. That's a real feather in their cap. Well, look, we're going to sign off in just a minute. Uh, we're going to pay attention to the future or what, what might be in store for, for you, Britt, with uh, winging it. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll remind everyone at home that's listening what our address is, our URL, if they want to check out Winging It. Yep. It's one more time. www.wingingit.show. Wingingit.show, everyone. Thanks a lot to Brittany for uh, coming and visiting with us. And Thank you. And hopefully we'll catch you next time in the air, or if not, on Hangar Talk. Sounds good. Right, see ya. All right, and thank you to Brittany for spending so much time with us and uh, telling us a little bit more about winging it and her future and and helping people, pilots all around. Yeah, it's uh, really, they should have called the show like Bucket List because she got to do some really amazing stuff. Checking them off. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, yeah. All right, so that's it for Hangar Talk this week. Our editor is Austin Hansen. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. Find us on aopa.org slash hangartalk and email us at hangartalk at aopa.org. And don't forget, we're now on iTunes and at Sporty's Takeoff app. All right, we'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Hey!